Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing aliens in short, controlled bursts. I'm John Engel. And I'm Jason Heck. And today we're going to begin with Minute 41. And this begins with Ripley saying, wait, tell them to, when she's sitting in the APC. And it ends with Gorman ordering the first team to head for operations. That's right. And it is Monday, which means we have a new guest. We have Paul Francis Sullivan, uh, otherwise known as Sully, from... The Sully Baseball Podcast, that's mainly where I know him from. He's also a TV producer. He's been a comic. He's got a lot of things that he's done. Uh, thanks for coming, Sully. Absolutely. I'm loving talking a little bit of aliens here. And I am calling you Sully because on your show, you always ask very politely that people do so. Please call me Sully. Yeah, it's, it, 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 makes it makes it easier. You know, no, no need for the formalities. You know what I, I emphasize that it's Paul Francis Sullivan on the podcast is because there is a writer who writes mainly about the White Sox named Paul Sullivan. And when I started doing it, um, a lot of people like started, when I started writing my blog uh, before the podcast, so people were writing to me and saying, wait a minute, you said this on the blog, but you said this in your column for the Chicago Tribune. And so I said, I better throw my middle name in to make sure that people realize that uh, I'm not the same dude. Right. Well, here in Kansas City, we appreciate uh not wanting to be confused with the White Sox in any way. Hey, there you anyway, go. So absolutely. Well, it's funny. I hadn't I haven't seen Aliens, uh, but I watched it beginning to end yesterday to just sort of get myself boned up on it. I hadn't seen it beginning to end probably since I was in college or in mid you know nineteen ninety three nineteen ninety four. I didn't see it in the theaters. I was I was a tiny bit too young to see it in the theaters. And I saw it like I first saw it like eighty eight, eighty nine, and then I saw it projected on a in a um, there was a I went to NYU for undergrad and they did a, a a double feature of Alien and Aliens in one of the screening rooms for one of the classes that I took, and so that was the first time I saw it projected like on the big screen, um, but that may have been the last time I saw it from beginning to end, and that, I'm going to guess that was nineteen ninety three. So it was a lot of fun. For me, at least, rewatching it and seeing, oh wow, it 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 actually holds up. It you know, it's still, you know, it's it's that lean. It's what it's the lean Cameron, which I think is the best Cameron. It's really you could really see this was the director of the Terminator, and it was before Cameron's films got a little bloated, and it was man, it is just still just an airtight, great sequel of of a film. I've seen Alien, the first Alien, a lot of times, and certainly more recently than I've seen Aliens. But uh, man, it it holds up. I gotta, I hate, I know we're supposed to be silly and say snarky stuff and everything like that, but man, it this this holds up. This film. What do you do? You have a theory? I mean, we'll just throw this out there, Jason, for you too. 
that you mentioned this lean Cameron versus bloated Cameron. I mean, do we have a theory as to what changed, like what made him change? I think success, certainly. I think Titanic, once you start lighting your cigars with burning $100 bills and you basically give a, a, a big middle finger to, to 20th Century Fox, which wanted to, you know, rein in your production and the more you spent, the crazier things looked and the whole world was laughing at him right up until that movie sailed off with a couple of billion dollars. And after that, how could you not get a monumental ego that Evil Knievel himself could not jump over? How could you not think that you could do no wrong and that your vision was the best vision and that you were going to be the guy to carry cinema to a new place that was your vision, which he certainly did with Avatar, for better or for worse. But I, I think once you make a movie like Titanic and once all of Hollywood laughs at you and then showers you with Oscars and money you start going a little bit crazy. You start getting a, a, a bit of an ego. I think it happened even before that to a degree. I mean, I think Titanic absolutely cemented it, but he had three straight films that were the most expensive films ever made when they came out. Terminator 2 was the most expensive film. True Lies was the most expensive film. Titanic was the most expensive film. So when you're someone who spends money extravagantly, even by Hollywood's terms, sure. you're obviously someone who is... Um, you know, it was on a kind of a big ego bender here. But, you know, he also someone, I mean, that the Terminator was a modestly budget film. Aliens, yeah. was, Aliens was not an unlimited budget film. And that he had a big chip on his shoulder. He had to prove himself with both the Terminator and with um, Aliens. And then, of course, he did, you know, he did The Abyss, which was a flop. You know, at least box whatever you think of the film or not. Uh, and then it turns it around and does the Terminator, the Terminator 2, which single-handedly changed the special effects business, but also was, you know, a, a really solid. See, I personally prefer the first Terminator because I like it. I like the lean storytelling of it. But Terminator 2 is wonderful, obviously. But from that moment on, it's like, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to spend as much money as I want, and I'm going to be right. Yeah. And, and this was before. I mean, this is... I mean, to, to the obvious parallels in someone like Lucas is like when you're watching Terminator and uh, Aliens, that's his equivalent of American Graffiti and Star Wars, mm -hmm. where he had he had to answer to people. And maybe had, sometimes having to answer to people forces you to stay lean, forces you to stay on point. And this is really to make a sequel to Alien, which was a great movie. By a great director and kind of a game changer film and to say and it, it's so easy to make a sequel to alien that would have just been the same thing you know it could have been another ship it gets on it could have been something but instead no we're gonna, we're gonna change the genre we're gonna make it basically you know a, a vietnam movie basically is right. what it was and to say we're not going to recreate alien we're going to give you a brand new experience and frankly, I don't like any of the other Alien movies. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that will, you know, if you're going to do Alien 3 or Alien, uh, the one with Winona Ryder, I can't remember the name of it. Um, if you want to do those and have me on, that'd be great. But uh, I'm probably not going to be as effusive about those films as I am about Aliens. Uh, that is, is why it's one of the best sequels of all time is because they said, we're just going to make a different movie. You're going to have a different experience with this movie. And... God damn, it works. Yeah, yeah. It's you're, I, I think a lot of people are probably on the, uh, right there with you in saying that kind of the creativity and the brilliance of the series kind of comes to a halt 
after Alien. Certainly, Alien Three. You know, the, a lot of people will call that Fincher's flawed masterpiece. I don't have a ton of people leaping to the defense of Alien Resurrection, um, no matter what. Um, but certainly, these two are both sterling, perfect examples of their genre. Yeah, and uh, I think they're kind of unimpeachably the best at what they do. And you're, I, I will also ca- uh, say that I think you're right about Cameron. I mean, you can you can look at True Lies and say, oh, it's it's a pretty funny action comedy, but it's a pretty bloated, gigantic, huge budget action comedy with kind of a silly climax on a Harrier jump jet, where he was clearly having a lot of fun with digital domain and all of his visual effects, um, but wasn't telling a lot of story right there. Yeah, well, that's what I mean, that's what I was going to say. I mean, to me, it starts with the, the Abyss, which I think is a pretty bad script. Um, but it was a, it was a it was an earnest attempt at making a uh, telling a story. I think he was still in storyteller mode. Yeah. But he started playing in this playground of the computer uh, generated effects, and once he started down that road, I, I mean, I think Terminator Two is a good movie. I like it a lot. Uh, I think that there's an established world there that he's working with, and and it's a fairly good script. I think there's some problems with it. It's a little schmaltzy from time to time, but. For, I, I think the only reason he made it is because he wanted to do more with that with that effect that he had used in in the in the abyss, and then from then on, you're right, Jason. The the Harrier stuff, that whole movie, True Lies, seems to be building to that Harrier scene more so as a as a big visual climax than anything that pays off as a story. And after that, I don't know. It just seems like he's just a he just wants to play in playground now. Now it's the Avatar world that just seems like. A, a kid with a, a crazy set of Legos. You well, know? we we know that he is a fetishist about technology. We know that he fetishizes of in his movies, and we know in the real world he loves it. He is a tinkerer. He is an inventor. He is a guy who puts a lot of money into developing the tools in the director's toolbox. Uh, and in that respect, if you look at movies like The Abyss and like T2, you can say, okay... He found a tool, a toy that he really loved with what, whatever you want to call it, the morphing effect. And he kind of took that and built his movie around it. And that's great. And he did the same thing with Avatar, right? He found the whole CGI world in 3D intoxicating and he built his movie around that. But in that respect, Avatar feels a lot more like uh, sort of, I guess you'd call it like a dissertation than a movie. It's yeah. a guy who's invented all this stuff and, and he wants to show it off and get graded on it. The fact that it's a pretty hokey, simple Cowboys and Indians, it's beautiful to look at, right? Like, here's the thing. I saw it in a theater, big theater, 3D glasses, the works, and you want to know something? I've never watched it again. Like, once was enough for me. Yeah. But I've watched Aliens a hundred times. Right. And I think that you could also point that there's, we talk about his tinkering and his toys, Think about how the, the, the Bill Paxton sequences in Titanic revolved around the underwater cameras and everything like that. And then in between Titanic and, and Avatar, he made like, people were nicknaming him Steve Zizou because he kept making all these underwater movies using the technology. He even mentioned in one of the, he won three Oscars on the night that Titanic won. In one of the rambling speeches that he gave, he thanked his brother for invent helping invent the underwater camera they used for this, that, or the other shot. 
and I, you know, and you saw he was having fun with that when, and look, all power to him, you know, he said, I'm going to, I made Titanic, I'm going to follow up with a couple of IMAX films, you know, going underwater, but they were using all the technology that they had made for the Bill Paxton sequences in Titanic, and it seemed like he was more interested in that. I mean, I mean, Titanic is is a film that is, I know this isn't the Titanic minute, but it's funny that it's, it's an extraordinarily well-made movie. And I appreciate it a lot more. Uh, Pearl Harbor made me appreciate what a good movie Titanic was. Cause I saw, <laughs> yeah. Oh wow. It isn't so easy. And Oh, I guess Kate and Leo were really good in that movie. Um, <laughs> right. uh, but you know, you could have taken any real story from that. And instead they took the most obvious romance that you could ever have of the rich girl and the poor boy. And, and then the rest of it is just his excuse to, you know, to, to sink the goddamn Titanic. <laughs> is what right, right. He just happened to have two excellent actors who who played the part well and a Celine Dion song that it got everyone crying. It's kind of meta, isn't it? Like in, in the movie... Uh, there's there's Bill Paxton aboard that Russian ship, the the uh, what the academic Keldish, I think it's called. Yeah. And how, how meta is it that Cameron spends I don't know ten or fifteen more voyages, essentially bankrolling the existence of that ship, so he can take his submersibles down into a trench or the Titanic or the Bismarck or whatever. It's it's very meta in that respect, actually. Well, well Bill Paxton was Cameron in that film. I mean, he was You're right. he, he was the. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell the story of Titanic visually, and I'm gonna tug your heartstrings with this made up story about this old lady. So I mean, Bill Paxton was playing. He might as well have been James Cameron. He may as well have been named. Hi, I'm James Cameron. And he sat down. Uh, um, Gloria Stewart said, "Yes, yeah, I directed Terminator. Tell me the story." It's like a, a nice, handsome stand-in. You're right because if I remember Titanic, Paxton is very passionate about the ship and its history. Right. Right. Yeah. Now you're right. You're that's that's a good that's that's a good observation. Yeah, Paxton is handsome Cameron. It's probably the least Bill Paxton role of his career too. It's the most subdued. He's just the he's never Bill Paxton the way you think of him in that yeah. role either. It seems like he's more the reserved kind of nerd that James Cameron is and just yeah, just a geek in a cable knit sweater. Yeah. You know? He didn't play well, like Hudson, you know. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> he kind of toned it down. It would have really turned that lady off, I think, had he, had he been coming at her with that kind of character. If he came at her full yeah. chet, right? Full yeah. chet from, from Weird Science, that would have... Yeah, right. It's the iceberg. Game over. <laughs> That's the Titanic. I didn't think it was a whale's dick, honey. Yeah, I'm sure Gloria, she, I'm sure she would have loved it. I'm sure she would have loved it. All right. All right. Let's, let's jump into this minute here, because there's a couple of things I really I want to talk about in this minute here. Um, we, got, we, got, well, we got Ripley... With uh, um, what's his name? With William Hope's character Gorman. Um, by the way, let's give. I mean, obviously Sigourney Weaver is incredible. Let's give the 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 cast of this film is amazing, and I love how sort of snivelly and cowardly Gorman is. You know, in in a realistic way. I'm not playing him like he's Don Knotts, but you know, you but you see that that's how a guy would really be, kind of like you know, by the books and in the end kind of cowardly and indecisive. And I think he's, I think he's great. William Hope is great in, as a Gorman in this film. Right. He's your basic 90 day wonder reserve Lieutenant thrown into the jungle of Vietnam. He's got yeah. book learning and he taught, he tries to lead his Marines by the book. And they of course know that he has no real world skills and they're contemptuous of him because of that. And that's why they always look to a pwn 
for real leadership. They kind of, they'll obey him because that's the chain of command, but the vibe you really get is contempt for Gorman when right. the, the, all, all of the fire team are just completely irritated by him. They do what he says, but only because they have to. And reverence for a punk. I mean, that's the, he's, he's the guy that they, they fight for, is a punk. Yeah. Yeah, fight for the guy you know, fight for the guy who's gotten you through the shit and right. home again, uh, and the guy who clearly is a professional who knows what he's doing. Now, one of the things I think is really cool about this minute is when you see like the points of view on the cameras, you see Hicks, you see Drake's point of view, and Vasquez, and of course, we're watching it on the screen, and then we see Sigourney Weaver and Paul Reiser, and, and, um, and I think it's Bishop in the scene, or I know Gorman's in the scene, everyone's sort of looking at the, the screens, and so there's a little bit of that sort of we're, we're, we're watching it and they're watching it. And so they're in that kind of passive mode of, of, you know, watching, being a voyeur of what's happening here. And, of course, it's all 80s technology. It's 80s video technology. But, you know, all, all science fiction just reflects that era that it's actually in. Um, it always cracked me. What they cracked me up, I forgot that when she calls up in a, one of the previous minutes when Sigourney Weaver calls up Paul Reiser and wakes him up uh, on the video phone there. And she, you know, they they could come up with the idea of a video phone, but they couldn't come up with the idea of a cell phone. They couldn't come up with the idea of, <laughs> you know, using a, a smartphone to do that. Right. It to still be a big box that you plug the thing into. Yeah. Um, but what this kind of reminded me of was kind of like paranormal activities or what was the the or cloverfield that there's that little bit of using the video like the the technology of the time having that kind of shaky grainy video that would be and i this was right around the time i was starting to learn how to use video which around 86 and having the pov shots and the kind of the shaky look as they're looking at the acid burns and the and the grid and the um, the grate and looking around and having that sense of reality, which is one of the things that makes those the paranormal activity films, all those things that they make now, those those the you know, the Blair Witch stuff, the the found footage, and felt like we were watching. This is a found footage alien film. Yeah, like you know, ooh, I wonder what happened here. Of course, we know what happened here. We also we also a goddamn alien, but you know, but it's it gives it that sense of reality that, that if you were at the time if you had one of those big huge um big huge bazooka video cameras that they used to have over your <laughs> shoulder and look yeah. through that tiny terrible black and white screen at your eye this is what it look would look like and this is what the the letters and the the the, the timer on the bottom would have that exact font so yeah. it gives it that sense of yeah if i were in here recording it this is what i'd be seeing in real time and i think that it's one of those things i think people who watch it now would appreciate it but i think people like me who i was really starting to use video in 85 86 right around the time this movie came out that this was a real sense of what a point of view would look like and gives it that sense of reality that we now have with people doing as i said the the paranormal activity stuff where it's supposed to be POV and, and gives it that sense of reality. And it, it adds a different level of spookiness to it because you know the Adrian Biddle cinematography, the, the late great Adrian Biddle, the great, you know, camera work and atmospheric work, but this gives it a sense of reality. And this gives it a sense of, of uh, almost, you know, it, it, we're not in a fantasy now. This is, we're real. And it gives it, it gives it a, an added, dimension of tension 
that the beautiful photography would not have been able to capture. Yeah, and I think this is one of those moments, too, where Cameron is using something from Alien and enhancing it. Yeah. Where you got you had those shots. It's just like bare, straight video on the suits in Alien that Ash is watching you know, from the Nostromo. And there's multiple occasions where Cameron seemed to have sat down and watched Alien and said, I have a better idea about how to, to use this. I have a way to apply this in a way that's more real world and more detailed. Like the, you know, we talk a lot about how the flamethrowers in Alien have a massive actual flame coming out of them. Uh, where here we have nice little blowtorch, tiny little blowtorch flames, which makes a lot more sense. Where Cameron's more of a technician, he seems to have taken that into account and then enhanced it for this movie. So the found footage idea, kind of innovative in, in Alien, we have James Cameron using it to even more effect, where we're actually getting character out of it. We're also identifying character through the screens as we see the names of them on each screen. It's a great way to track the characters that so we have this ensemble going on right now and we need to know who's who and we need to know whose point of view we're looking through. It's really good basic filmmaking. And yeah, you're right. It, it works to, to make it real world and not a fantasy. This isn't a fantasy sci-fi film. We're supposed to feel this like, like we're there with them. There's other things that happen in the next few minutes that I think uh, uh, accomplish that as well. I love that. I, and I just love that moment when they, they, I'm going to go, it's probably around, it's from Vasquez's camera around second 22. And you see, uh, he says, look at this and they tilt up and you see the whole looking up and then they cut to the shot, you know, well lit with a cinematographer. So you, you get a sense of, wait, what the hell is that through the camera? And then you cut to the, the beautiful shot. Um, it, it, it keeps the audience in mind too. Like we're going to give you information but in case there's something that's not clear, we'll make sure that you're not confused at this scene. And I think it's really, it, and you see that, you know, the, the giant gun that Vasquez has, which has adios written on the side of it. I don't know if you noticed that, but like our 31, he's got the adios right there. And that's when he, in a precursor to uh, Titanic spits, like the scene where Kate Winslet was spitting over the side. This is a slightly different context where he drops the loogie down the, the the hole and yeah that's when we go back to Vasquez kind of pushing him on the side there well we have a couple of pivotal things that happen here we have um Ripley actually taking a little bit of charge when she picks up the headset which is not handed to her she says to to Gorman who does not react quickly enough wait tell him to and then she picks up the headset and basically orders although it's it comes out as hey please do this for me Hicks to pan right, and that's when we see, and the Marines see, the melted floor. And th- when Hicks says that, he says, looks like someone must have bagged one of Ripley's bad guys. That is when the Marines first start to realize that what she has said and what they laughed at might, in fact, have some truth to it. And I think it's an, it's an important pivotal moment because we also see Hudson, who laughs it off and says, hey, if you like that, you're going to love this. And we see the horrible damage. Like, clearly, like an entire alien's blood supply was dropped on those grates and ate through, what, three or four levels, and yet he's still cavalier enough with the pulse rifle and the firepower to laugh it off. But Hicks is not too cavalier about that. And we also see that now that Hudson's remaining cocky. Hicks is taking things a little bit more seriously. And you see, you see Paul, I mean, I, I, I always just, I know he's Burke. I'm going to keep calling him Paul Reiser. You see Paul Reiser's reaction 
where there's a sense of, of course, we know later on that he really wants Ripley to be correct. Um, and you get this sense of like, yep, you were telling the truth, or at least enough of the truth that there's something here. Well, I'm glad you read that, you know, at least a little bit more meaning to that line, the acid for bloodline than I did, because to me, that was the one that's one of those little spots where it just felt like a expositional line they had to throw in there. No, I no, I read that as, yeah, that's one of the things you said that makes sense, according to your description. Ah, that's good, because, yeah, I, my thinking was that we've been talking a lot about how when making aliens, they had to take into account especially in the era they made it in when it was still pretty early in the home video yeah. uh, era that they had to take into account that people might not remember alien or have never seen it. So there's multiple places where they're kind of reminding us or first informing certain audience members of what the rules of the world there. And I just took this, even she even looks over at him and maybe when you're, what you're saying is she looks over at him to say, see yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And I took it as just her cueing him for the line, but Good. I'm glad you you brought that one around for me because I was kind of thinking that was a that was a kind of a chunky spot in the movie. I think Sully's right on this one, and I'll tell you why. Because Burke is the one whose faith in her. He's the guy who quote is gambling on her with the company, right? Reinstating her flight license and all that stuff, her flight status. So this is him saying, "Hey, things are looking pretty good for your case. You were right." Um, you know, you're 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 not going to operate forklifts for the rest of your life. I kind of like that. He's sort of. It almost says, "Hey, point to you," or "This is this this is in your favor." I gotta say, I mean, I'm I'm a at this time. I didn't see this movie in the theaters. I was 14 when this came out, and my parents were just beginning to let me go see R-rated films. Uh, but I had not seen Alien, so I, there was no reason for me to go. In fact, this was a disappointing movie summer for me because this was always was a big summer movie, whether it was. Jedi or Raiders or Ghostbusters or Back to the Future, whatever it was. And there was no one great summer movie for me. I hated Top Gun. I thought Top Gun was stupid. Oh, I was, man. I, I was 14 years old. I walked out of that film and said, so what do you think? So the flying scenes were great. The rest of the movie was stupid. That was me. I, mean, it, it, I, I wasn't buying it. I just I saw right through it right there. And Aliens was a huge hit that summer, but I didn't see it. And so, was, unfortunately, the Red Sox had a great summer, so I was more interested <laughs> in the Red Sox in 86 than I was in anything else. But one thing I was a huge fan of was Letterman. And yeah. we had we were starting to videotape Letterman um, and watch it over breakfast every morning. Or we'd at least get through the top ten list. And he had tons of comedians on. Like all the people he knew from the comedy store that and uh, in, in Los Angeles he would bring on. And Paul Reiser was a frequent guest of Letterman and I thought he was hilarious and he's a great stand-up comic and he's actually a very good actor as well he's great in whiplash um and he and I remember when he was saying he's in the film Aliens and like okay I can understand being in Bachelor Party I could understand <laughs> him being in you know Hots or something like that but or, or you know some sort of like like in a Michael Keaton role you know, before Michael Keaton was Batman but like what do you mean he's in Aliens and I remember they showed the clip the scene after um, Bishop scrapes his finger and and it's revealed that he's an android. And they showed that clip right. on, on Letterman. I'm thinking, 
what what's going on here? this guy's a funny comedian and he's doing this scene that i have no idea what's happening the guy's bleeding milk the woman from ghostbusters is angry and they got the comedian <laughs> something else here. so I, that, I was had no interest in seeing this aliens movie until you know later but i mean he is it's a great bit of casting of taking someone who you know is is uses his best performance qualities and puts it I, I, he doesn't have many funny lines. He's not even there for comedic relief. He's there as a heavy, and it's a it's a great piece of uh, countercasting. And he's great. I think he's subtly great in this scene, and and later in one of the other minutes where he they're in the lab, where there's a sense of he he subtly has subtly has uh, dollar signs in his eyes. Yeah, he's 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 a heavy, but he is a a, a glad handling kind of. Not greasy, but but sort of a, a, a hey pal, how you doing? In his vest and his flannel shirt, his little expeditionary gear, and obviously he's a a, a point of of contempt and humor for the Marines who view him as uh, justifiably as a company man, and who are probably more familiar with how company men treat them than uh, than perhaps Ripley might be after her fifty seven years. But they obviously regard him as as kind of a a, a dirt ball. And we start seeing, yeah, in the lab, the, the, the faint whiff that, uh, that Mr. Compassionate, who brought her a cat to uh, disarm her upon meeting her, might, might, have, uh, oh, might have a different agenda. Well, we'll get to that minute when we get there. But yeah, he's basically Space Halliburton. Yeah, yeah. okay. I'll buy it. Um, and then uh, we've got, uh, essentially, um, everybody sort of assesses the damage, and we see that Hudson is both cocky and a little bit of a wiener when Vasquez playfully nudges him, and he's like, quit screwing around. So we kind of get a, a whiff of, of Hudson's uh, yellow streak. Um, and then Gorman gets all decisive and says, uh, head for operations. And I'm uh, says that, uh, I believe he says the area is secured. Isn't that true, John? Uh, he, he doesn't quite yet, right? Yeah, he does. You're right, because he... I was going to bring up the fact that we get, at the very beginning of this minute, we get the first time, you know, you said, Jason, the first time Ripley really asserts herself. It's the first time she actually takes on a role uh, in the group here as expert, right? She's the expert on these aliens. She sees something nobody else could have recognized. And she asserts herself and takes a little control. And it's one of the first times we really see her step up as a character. Um, I've argued up to this point, still, we're still not, with Ripley yet. We're still not seeing the Ripley we know. She's just trying to find herself. She's still waking up from 57 years of sleep. Yeah, and she's pretty passive actually, so far. But here we get her, you know, she's the only one that could point this out, so she does. And that's the Ripley we know. And then, of course, Gorman shuts her right back down again. She gets she gets one moment before he shuts her right down and uh, doesn't seem to really have much respect for her opinion on this. I mean, you would think if she's the expert, she's just proven one of her assertions about the alien is, is correct, you would think that he would might ask her, okay, well, what do you think? <laughs> hey, so what do you think? They're hiding around the corner, maybe? What do they usually do? Did you have any experience with this? Instead, he just shuts her right down again. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and quite cockily says, well, that's it then. The area is secured. And yep. Ripley says, no, 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 no. Wait a minute. That, what? You, you searched two quarters and, and ten offices. It's, it's not secured. And he immediately shuts her down. Hand goes up. Listen, let me do my job. Go back to being a passenger. If I need you, I'll consult you. And she starts right there. You see her smile, her sad, incredulous little smile. She starts to realize that she might very well be in deep shit. 
she starts to realize that for all this firepower, for the giant APC, for the dropship, for the Sulaco, all of these preparations, that this guy who's supposed to command the mission is out of his depth. He is cocky, he is confident in the firepower, and is not thorough. Uh, they used their motion trackers, they, they swept with their flashlights and didn't find anything, and she, that look she has says, oh shit. Yeah. Yep, I think she's starting to realize that you're right. And uh, I think we'll see the effect of it. We'll wait till the next minute. We'll see a little bit, but her disposition maybe tells us a little bit of how she's feeling about being with these guys in the next minute. So. My very well. That's all I have for this minute, which was an actual, a, a good one. This is a minute where some, some cool stuff starts happening out of sort of their prowling the corridors, um, kind of uh, taking their time to be thorough and Cameron taking his time to let them. Um, but now things start really kind of popping again. So good minute, man. Yeah, absolutely. So do you have anything else for this minute? I hope that, I hope they all live. Oh, Sully's got a big heart and a big baseball brain. Listen yeah. to that. I, I, I've only seen it. This is as far as I got. And that, so I, I'm going to wait for the next one. And then I, I... I hope they can contain the flooding after the ship hits the iceberg. I, I had to turn it off after it hit, but I know that they can flood four compartments. So, yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> All right, Sully, you want to tell our listeners where they can find you out on the Internet? Uh, well, you go to sullybaseball.com, but m- the main thing you do, follow me on Twitter, at sullybaseball, and I'm going to be doing a lot of things. There's, uh, every year I do uh, an in-memoriam video uh, that I unveil around the All-Star game, and I'm going to unveil a new one this year. It's going to be one that hopefully will tug at the heartstrings, but uh, I do the podcast. I'm doing a bunch of episodes coming up, and I'm going to do some other video projects, too. So just follow me on Sully Baseball or go to sullybaseball.com, and you will see... Uh, I'll keep you up to date there, and we'll have a lot of fun. Nice. And you can find us at AlienMinute.com or on Twitter at AlienMinutePod. We're also on Instagram at AlienMinutePodcast. Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes if you haven't done that already. Just If for no other reason than just to give us a five-star review, which would be very helpful. And keep uh, watching the skies. Keep watching the skies. <laughs> also, it's Monday. We always like on Mondays to give a shout-out to Pete and Alex over at the Star Wars Minute for coming up with this crazy concept and letting us use it. Thanks again, guys. All right, well, that's going to do it for Minute 41. We'll see you tomorrow for Minute number 42.